0: I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It Podcast. Today, we are going to journey to France and meet one of the greatest short story writers in the world. He influenced O. Henry, Anton Chekhov, Kate Chopin, and many others, and this would be none other than Guy de Maupassant. And the story we'll we'll be reading and discussing is his most famous story, The Necklace.
0: Guy de Montpossant, he didn't live very long. I mean, he died right before turning 43. But fortunately for him, unlike some other guys or ladies, during his lifetime, he got to enjoy his financial success and he even enjoyed some fame. He wrote over 300 stories, six novels, three travel books, a bunch of stories, but what we, well, a bunch of poetry, but mostly we know him for his short stories.
1: Hmm. Well, let's uh, put him in historical context uh, for a minute. He was born in 1850 and he died in 1893. And if uh, we put that in historical context in the Americas, uh, we were living through the American Civil War all the way up through industrialization. Europe in general was experiencing the good and the bad of the height of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we talked about that briefly when we talked about Charles Dickens, but also William Blake. You know, some of the excesses were pretty terrible and they were felt all over Europe. But France in particular, under the leadership of Emperor Napoleon III, made great strides in modernization. And France led the world in many ways. And unfortunately, this all came crashing down to some degree with Emperor Napoleon III, reluctantly, really. Uh, led He led France into the Franco-Prussian War, as with every other war It was an atrocity, although we don't talk about it much today. But among other things, it really changed the landscape of Europe and the European balance of power from then on.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess if I have to be honest, I've heard of the Franco-Prussian War, but it's not really something I've really studied or understand very well.
1: Well, this war was between France and what is now primarily what we would call Germany. Um, However, this isn't exactly accurate because you know maps have changed so dramatically since those days. But... The German Confederation, uh, led by the Kingdom of Prussia, defeated Napoleon III and France's Second Empire. And uh, Napoleon III would be the last emperor of France, and Guy de Montpassant volunteered in that war, and he pulled from his experiences in the war a lot for a lot of his stories.
0: Well, I'm sure de Montpessant's war experiences were you know, a big influence, obviously, and it was a subject of his writing, but it certainly wasn't the only thing that he wrote about. De Montpessant observed all levels of French society, starting with prostitutes and soldiers, and he moved onward up that social scale, He was really interested in social struggle uh, and really hopelessness in some ways, people trying to fight fate which is interesting in the light of the fact that he himself did really well financially and professionally, even though he had lots of personal obstacles, Not the smallest not being you know his parents getting divorced when he was a child. That's always traumatic. He grew up in Normandy, which is in the north of France, but his mother filed and got divorced from his dad because his dad was such a womanizer.
1: You know, a woman being granted a divorce was really unusual in that time.
0: Well, it was, and and Guy went with his mom and was raised by his mom. He went to Catholic school, which I don't really think was a positive experience because he orchestrated his own expulsion. He <laughs> <laughs> um, eventually moved to Paris. His mother introduced him to a man who would would be the single greatest influence in his life, outside perhaps of her, and that would be Gustave Flaubert. Now, Flaubert... Is a famous writer. You've probably heard of Madame Bovary, one of his most famous works, and for me, one of the most infuriating books I've ever <laughs> read. Of course, he does that intentionally. It's beautiful and it's an admired work. It's powerful. It talks about you know human frailty.
1: Well, uh, Flaubert introduced *Le Poisson to other famous writers, and his career was off. He was prolific. He was well-received. After a few years, he was able to quit his day job and live off his writing and live in a high style.
0: Yes, and apparently he inherited his father's taste in women, too. And he has been labeled by more than one historian as a womanizer, although unlike his father, he was single. But he had many relationships, and these relationships were with all kinds of women, prostitutes, women of all kinds of rank, all the way up the social scale, including countesses. He had three children with one of his lovers, but unfortunately for him, this lifestyle resulted in syphilis, and as his syphilis progressed, His writing got more and more shocking as he was losing his sense of reality. Eventually, he became convinced that flies were devouring his brain. He tried to shoot himself, and he rammed a paper knife into his throat. That incident got him taken into an asylum, and that's where he lived the remainder of his days, which wasn't, you know, but just a few months after that incident. (laughs) That's
1: a terrible ending.
0: I know. (laughs) Truly is. And perhaps ironic because he's a writer that's respected for his ability to see real life for what it really is. And he ended his own life, you know, without any real notion of reality.
1: You know, uh, Tolstoy, the Russian writer, found him worthy enough of a writer to write a very long and complimentary piece that titled, uh He titled "The Works of Guy de Maupassant," and he claimed that de Maupassant could see with his own eyes things as they were see their meaning, see the contradictions of life which are hidden from others and vividly present them.
0: Yes, and that really is a nutshell version of what he's famous for. At that time, many writers in France, and this includes Flaubert uh, de Montpoussin's mentor, but also the most notable Emile Zola, they were moving away from this romanticized way of writing about the world toward a more a gritty, uh, realistic way. And the trend was to portray life as it really was. We call this realism. We saw it in the theater. Uh, we saw this with Chopin. But the French were doing this first. They were doing it notably in the plastic arts, things like painting. A notable example is the politically controversial painter Gustave Colbert, he would paint peasants, which, you know, that's no big deal. There'd been many people painting peasants, but they were always happy picking wheat in the field. And he didn't depict them like that. He depicted people in their misery. He uh, showed that life was hard and that people didn't always like that. We always, you know, prefer the romanticized versions. Oh, this is such a beautiful life. Well, Guy de Montpossant was in the realistic vein and he didn't want to make people or life look better than it really was. However, de Montpoussant wasn't just a realist. He extended his idea even further into a branch that we call naturalism. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of isms at you, but uh, and that could sound boring, but it isn't really. If you understand what these guys are actually doing, it makes the stories that they write more interesting. De Montpoussin was of the mindset that nature, the the rules of nature, held a very large sway on your ability to move around in the world, and depending on you know your circumstances, the world was just gonna win. It's evolutionary; the fittest will always survive, the strongest survive, the weakest die, and there's not a lot you can do about it. You know, he didn't believe that. God was coming to your rescue. He didn't believe that Prince Charming's would come out of nowhere and swoop down. Nobody was coming to save you. Yeah, John Steinbeck thought like this too, and you can see it in another <laughs> famous work of Mice and Men, that sort of thing. You know,
1: all this kind of writing is just pretty dark, and I'm always fascinated by people who love it.
0: Well, you know, it can be, but I will say that our story today isn't as dark as of mice and men. I mean, no one's going to die, but we do see in the story people as they really are and people as they really are are not always good. I mean, they're often selfish and they're often stupid and we're often, you know, products of our environment. It's not often that we can rewrite our story and we can overcome our circumstances. And honestly, most people don't. Most people really do succumb to their environments. And de Poussin said this about people. Um, He said it this way. He wanted to write the history of the heart, soul, and mind in their normal state. His goal, and let me use his words, was not, quote, telling a story or entertaining us or touching our hearts, but at forcing us to think and understand the deeper, hidden meaning of events. So understanding that that's what he wants to do, let's read his story, The Necklace. It's set in Paris sometime during the 1800s. Let's read it.
1: She was one of those pretty and charming girls born as though fate had blundered over her into a family of artisans. She had no marriage portion, no expectations, no means of getting known, understood, loved, and wedded by a man of wealth and distinction, and she let herself be married off to a little clerk in a ministry of education. Her tastes were simple because she had never been able to afford any other, but she was as unhappy as though she had married beneath her. For women have no caste or class, their beauty, grace, and charm serving them for birth or family. Their natural delicacy, their instinctive elegance, their nimbleness of wit are their only mark of rank and put the slum girl on a level with the highest lady in the land.
0: So de Montpessant immediately situates our protagonists in the social system of her day. You know, during this period of European history, classes are... Are very stratified. There's the highest classes, but then on the bottom they're the peasants. But because of the Industrial Revolution, there is this growing middle class, but the middle class itself is stratified. The woman in this story is from a family of artisans. That's one class up from peasants. These are not prestigious or powerful people. Artisans are people that work with their hands, like bricklayers. Our protagonist is born poor, however, she's gorgeous, and so therefore, maybe she could have some limited upward mobility. Her beauty, according to our story, puts the slum girl on a level of the highest lady of the land. Her husband, on the other hand, is a bureaucrat. Now, that's better than a bricklayer or other working class people, but it's certainly not high-ranking.
1: Uh, I do notice a little editorializing on the narrator's (laughs) part um, in in that he comments that women live outside of the class system since they can't work. And uh, they have really only their physical attributes and their elegance and their social smarts as a way to improve their lives. I mean, you know, really not their ability to work for a living.
0: True. And what makes this girl upset is that she thinks she's better looking and therefore better than her husband. I mean, she's beautiful. Her beauty in her mind means she deserves something in this life. And what does she deserve? Well, she deserves luxury. And since he can't provide that, she suffers. She's tormented, to use de Poisson's words. Let's read how she thought of her life.
1: She suffered endlessly, feeling herself born for every delicacy and luxury, She suffered from the poorness of her house, from its mean walls, worn chairs, and ugly curtains. All these things, of which other women of her class would not have even been aware, tormented and insulted her. The sight of the little Breton girl who came to do the work in her little house aroused heartbroken regrets and hopeless dreams in her mind. She imagined silent antechambers, heavy with oriental tapestries, "...lit by torches in lofty bronze sockets, with two tall footmen in knee breeches sleeping in large armchairs, overcome by the heavy warmth of the stove, she imagined vast salons hung with antique silks, exquisite pieces of furniture supporting priceless ornaments, and small, charming perfumed rooms." created just for little parties of intimate friends, men who were famous and sought after, whose homage roused every other woman's envious longings. When she sat down for dinner at the round table covered with a three-days-old cloth opposite her husband, who took the cover off the soup tureen, exclaiming delightedly, "'Aha! Scotch! Broth! What could be better?' She imagined delicate meals, Gleaming silver, tapestries, peopling the walls with the folk of a past age and strange birds and fairy forests. She imagined delicate food served in marvelous dishes, murmured gallantries, listened to with an inscrutable smile as one trifled with a rosy flesh of trout or wings of asparagus chicken. She had no clothes, no jewels, nothing, and these were the only things she loved. She felt that she was made for them. She had longed so eagerly to charm to be desired to be wildly attractive and sought after. She had a rich friend, an old school friend, whom she refused to visit because she suffered so keenly when she returned home. She would weep whole days with grief. Regret, despair, and misery.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a very long description describing her quote-unquote misery. I
1: would, I've heard more miserable stories than that <laughs> I before. I mean, the
0: word suffering is used over and over again, and it's juxtaposed with this long description of all these things she imagines that she deserves. And we see our narrator communicating through the subtext that maybe... This woman's perspective does not align with her reality. I mean, her house makes her miserable, but she has curtains and she complains because she doesn't like looking at her maid. You know, obviously, she's not the lowest person on the social scale. She's not as worse off. She's not starving. She complains of the elegance of the meals. Her husband seems to like them. She complains that it's not elegant enough. Uh, If you listen in how she behaves, it's overdramatic. It's actually pitiful. If you listen to the language, in her mind, it's if she's in this war zone But in reality, the truth of it is, she's just not as rich as an old school friend she used to have. The text states that the only thing, I mean, that word is a strong word. The only thing she loves is clothes and jewels. She weeps for whole days. And listen to the words, grief, regret, despair, and misery. But what is it this woman is weeping over? I mean, we're set up to question her priorities and her perspectives. I think
1: so. (laughs) One evening, her husband came home with an exultant air, holding a large envelope in his hand. Here's something for you, he said. Swiftly, she tore the paper and drew out a printed card on which were these words. The Minister of Education and Madame Rompano request the pleasure of the company of Monsieur and Madame Loisel at the ministry on the evening of Monday, January the 18th. Instead of being delighted, as her husband hoped, she flung the invitation petulantly across the table, murmuring, What do you want me to do with this? Why, darling, I thought you'd be pleased. You never go out, and this is a great occasion. I had tremendous trouble to get it. Everyone wants one. It's very select, and very few go to the clerks. You'll see all the really big people there. She looked at him out of furious eyes and said impatiently, And what do you suppose I'm to wear at such an affair? He'd not thought about it, he stammered. Why, the dress you go to the theater in, it looks very nice to me. He stopped, stupefied and utterly at a loss when he saw that his wife was beginning to cry. Two large tears ran slowly down from the corners of her eyes towards the corners of her mouth. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? He faltered. But with a violent effort, she overcame her grief and replied in a calm voice, wiping her wet cheeks. Nothing. Only I haven't a an dress, and so I can't go to this party. Give your invitation to some friend of yours whose wife will be turned out better than I shall. He was heartbroken. Look here, Matilda, he persisted. What would be the cost of a suitable dress, which you could use on other occasions as well? Something very simple. She thought for several seconds, reckoning up prices and also wondering for how large a sum she could ask without bringing upon herself an immediate refusal and an exclamation of horror from the careful-minded clerk. At last, she replied with some hesitation, I don't know exactly, but I think I could do it on 400 francs. He grew slightly pale, for this was exactly the amount he had been saving for a gun intending to get a little shooting next summer on the plain of Nanterre with some friends who went lark shooting there on Sundays. Nevertheless, he said, very well, I'll give you 400 francs, but try and get a really nice dress with the money.
0: Again, you know, the focus of our story is Madame Mathilde Loisel, but her husband seems like a pretty nice guy. I mean, he's so proud of himself. He scored for his miserable and despairing wife, a very impressive and selective invitation for them to go to a ball. This is an elite event. People were dying for these kinds of invitations. But how does she react? She weeps. Tears come down her cheek. She's weeping a lot these days because she doesn't have a certain life. And he's finally doing something that his wife, he hopes, will appreciate and what follows is this dialogue between the two of them where Matilda very obviously manipulates her husband. She cries, tears coming down her feet her face, and she condescends to him and she degrades him. She's very calculating and she manipulates him to get exactly what she wants. Only I have an address, so I can't go to this party. Give your invitation to some friend of yours whose wife will be better turned out than I shall. And this, of course, breaks his heart. In other words, give this invitation to a better man. Find a better man who takes care of his wife better than you take care of yours. This is passive aggressive. It's accusatory. And it has the desired effect. Of course, she breaks his heart. And he wants to know how much it would cost to satisfy her. And notice how slowly she responds. She takes her time thinking about how much she could ask before he flat out says no. She asks exactly for a specific amount, an amount. She probably knows he has because he's been saving it to buy a gun. Maybe it's a coincidence, but it's hard to believe that this self-centered, manipulative woman didn't calculate that. She also knows that he likely would give it to her, and he does. He gives her the whole amount.
1: The day of the party drew near, and Madame Loisel seemed sad, uneasy, and anxious. Her dress was ready, however. One evening, her husband said to her, What's the matter with you? You've been very odd for the last three days. I'm utterly miserable at not having any jewels, not a single stone to wear, she replied. I shall look absolutely no one. I would almost rather not go to the party.
0: Again, the hyperbolic language. It demonstrates her total contempt and ingratitude for her husband. She's miserable because she doesn't have jewels. Remember, clothes and jewels are the only things she loves. She's humiliated and she looks to her husband to problem solve for her. He's going to recommend that she go see her rich friend, which she'll do.
1: Wear flowers, he said. They're very smart at this time of year. For 10 francs, you could get two or three gorgeous roses. She was not convinced. No, There's nothing so humiliating as looking poor in the middle of a lot of rich women.' "'How stupid you are!' exclaimed her husband. "'Go and see Madame Forestier and ask her to lend you some jewels. "'You know her quite well. Enough for that.' She uttered a cry of delight. "'That's true. I never thought of it.' Next day, she went to see her friend and told her her trouble. Madame Forestier went to her dressing table, took up a large box, brought it to Madame Loiselle, opened it, and said, Choose, my dear. First she saw some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a Venetian cross in gold and gems of exquisite workmanship. She tried the effect of the jewels before the mirror, hesitating, unable to make up her mind to leave them, to give them up. She kept on asking, Haven't you anything else? Yes, look for yourself. I don't know what you would like best. Suddenly she discovered in a black satin case a superb diamond necklace. Her heart began to beat covetously. Her hands trembled as she lifted it. She fastened it around her neck, upon her high dress, and remained in ecstasy at the sight of herself. Then, with hesitation, she asked in anguish, Could you lend this to me, just this alone? Yes, of course. She flung herself on her friend's breast, embraced her frenziedly, and went away with her treasure.
0: Notice the words, again, her heart beats covetously, her hands tremble, she's in ecstasy, she embraces her friend in a frenzy.
1: The day the party arrived, Madame Loiselle was the success. She was the prettiest woman present, elegant, graceful, smiling, and quite above herself with happiness. All the men stared at her, inquired her name, and asked to be introduced to her. All the undersecretaries of state were eager to waltz with her. The minister noticed her. She danced madly, ecstatically, drunk with pleasure, with no thought for anything in the triumph of her beauty, in the pride of her success, in a cloud of happiness made up of this universal homage and admiration of the desires that she had aroused, of the completeness of a victory so dear to her feminine heart.
0: This is a very interesting account of the party. I mean... It's very short. Her delusions of grandeur, and we have to believe, again, is this woman seeing the world correctly? But they're described in many words, but basically, she's a hit. She's the most beautiful woman there. All the men want to dance with her. The minister notices her. She's, quote, drunk with pleasure. And all she thinks about is her triumph, her success, the, quote, universal homage and admiration. Her presence at the ball is, in her mind, a complete victory, whatever she means by that, whatever whatever she's battling. But in other words, she gets everything she wants. The problem is, it's only two paragraphs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She left about four o'clock in the morning. Since midnight, her husband had been dozing in a deserted little room, in company with three other men whose wives were having a good time. He threw over her shoulders the garments he had brought for them to go home in, modest, everyday clothes, whose poverty clashed with the beauty of the ball dress. She was conscious of this and was anxious to hurry away so that she should not be noticed by the other women putting on their costly furs. Loisel restrained her. "'Wait a little. You'll catch cold in the open. I'm going to fetch a cab.' But she did not listen to him and rapidly descended the staircase." When they were out in the street, they could not find a cab. They began to look for one, shouting at the drivers whom they saw passing in the distance. They walked down towards the seine, desperate and shivering. At last, they found on the quay one of those old night prowling carriages, which are only to be seen in Paris after dark, as though they were ashamed of their shabbiness in the daylight.
0: Notice how much attention is paid to the fact that she's ashamed. This paragraph is just as long as the party scene. I mean, she races out that door. She's ashamed of her coat. Her husband literally tries to restrain her. She's rash. She's in a rush. She shouts. She walks. She's out pacing in the streets, ashamed of her, quote, shabbiness.
1: It brought them to their door in the Rue des Martyrs, and suddenly they walked up to their own apartment. It was the end for her. As for him, he was thinking that he must be at the office at ten. She took off the garments in which she had wrapped her shoulders so as to see herself in all her glory before the mirror. But suddenly she uttered a cry. The necklace was no longer around her neck. What's the matter with you? Asked her husband, already half undressed. She turned toward him in the utmost distress. I've, I've no longer got Madame Forestier's necklace. He started with astonishment. What? "'Impossible!' "'They searched in the folds of her dress, "'in the folds of the coat, "'in the pockets, everywhere they could not find it. "'Are you sure that you still had it on "'when you came away from the ball?' he asked. "'Yes, I touched it in the hall at the ministry. "'But if you had lost it in the street, "'we should have heard it fall.' "'Yes, probably we should. "'Did you take the number of the cab?' "'No, you didn't notice it, did you?' "'No.' "'They stared at one another, dumbfounded. "'At last, Loisel put on his clothes again.' I'll go over all the ground we walked, he said, and see if I can't find it. And he went out. She remained in her evening clothes, lacking strength to get into bed, huddled on a chair without volition or power of thought. Her husband returned about seven. He had found nothing. He went to the police station, to the newspapers to offer a reward, to the cab companies everywhere that a ray of hope impelled him.
0: Notice the juxtaposition here. The necklace is lost. The husband takes the initiative to look for it. He looks for it all night until 7 a.m. Matilda just lays around, lacking strength to get in bed. He walks. He goes to the police. He goes to the newspapers. He offers a reward. She does nothing.
1: <laughs> she waited all day long in the same state of bewilderment at this fearful catastrophe. Loiselle came home at night, his face lined and paled. He had discovered nothing. "'You must write to your friend,' he said, "'and tell her that you've broken the clasp of her necklace and are getting it mended. That will give us time to look about us,' she wrote at his dictation." By the end of the week, they had lost all hope. Loiselle had aged five years, declared, "'We must see about replacing the diamonds.' Next day, they took the box, which had held the necklace, and went to the jewelers, whose name was inside.' He consulted his books. It was not I who sold this necklace, madam. I must have merely supplied the clasp. Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, searching for another necklace like the first, consulting their memories, both ill with remorse and anguish of mind. In a shop at the Palais Royal, they found a string of diamonds which seemed to them exactly like the one they were looking for. It was worth 40,000 francs. They were allowed to have it for 36,000. They begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days, and they arranged matters on the understanding that it would be taken back for 34,000 francs if the first one were found before the end of February. Loiselle possessed 18,000 francs left to him by his father. He intended to borrow the rest. He did borrow it, getting a 1,000 from one man, 500 from another, five louis here, three louis there. He gave notes of hand, entered into ruinous agreements did business with usurers and the whole tribe of money lenders. he mortgaged the whole remaining years of his existence, risked his signature without even knowing if it could honor it, and appalled at the agonizing face of the future, at the black misery about to fall upon him, at the prospect of every possible physical privation and moral torture, he went to get the new necklace and put down upon the jeweler's counter 36,000 francs.
0: And of course, by this point in the story, no one should have any respect for Matilda. She's done nothing for herself. We even find out that he has a a pretty good inheritance from his father, and he spends the entirety on it to partially pay for this necklace his wife lost. Listen to the language. He's appalled at the agonizing face of the future, at the misery that's about to befall him. At the prospect of every possible physical privation and moral torture, it's very inflated, just like the other delusions were inflated. The sentence structure contrasts very obviously with the language that was used to describe Matilda and all of her imagined glory. The inflated misery will be as inflated as her monetary glory, except This will not last for two paragraphs. It will be into the infinite future. This stands out because his misery is undeserved. Her short-lived, fabricated glory was also undeserved. He is grounded in his own reality, and she does nothing to fix her problem. It was his to solve.
1: When Madame Loisel took back the necklace to Madame Forestier, the latter said to her in a chilly voice, "'You ought to have brought it back sooner. I might have needed it.' She did not, as her friend had feared, open the case. If she had noticed the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she have not taken her for a thief? Madame Loisel came to know the ghastly life of abject poverty. From the very first she played her part heroically— This fearful debt must be paid off. She would pay it. The servant was dismissed. They changed their flat. They took a garret under the roof. She came to know the heavy work of the house, the hateful duties of the kitchen. She washed the plates, wearing out her pink nails on the coarse pottery and the bottoms of pans. She washed the dirty linen, "'the shirts and dishclothes, and hung them out to dry on a string. "'Every morning she took the dustbin down into the street "'and carried up the water, stopping on each landing to get her breath. "'And clad like a poor woman, she went to the fruiterer, "'to the grocery, to the butcher, a basket on her arm, "'haggling, insulted, fighting for every wretched halfpenny of her money. "'Every month, notes had to be paid off, others renewed, time gained.' Her husband worked in the evenings at putting straight a merchant's accounts, and often at night he did copying at two pence halfpenny a page, and this life lasted ten years.
0: You know, at the beginning of the story, we see that she thought she was poor. Now, you know, she's come to know what real poverty actually looks like, and of course, she's a dynamic character because she's changed. Uh, now she is quote, clad like a poor woman. She gets her own food. She she does her own chores. She does the chores of other people.
1: At the end of 10 years, everything was paid off. Everything, the usurer's charges and the accumulation of superimposed interest. Madame Loisel looked old now. She had become like all the other strong, hard, coarse women of poor households. Her hair was badly done. Her skirts were awry. Her hands were red. She spoke in a shrill voice, and the water slopped all over the floor when she scrubbed it. But sometimes when her husband was at the office, she sat down by the window and thought of that evening long ago, of the ball at which she had been so beautiful and so much admired.
0: And, of course, here she is as how she started. She was pretty then, but she was poor, Now she's poor and ugly like everyone else who she thought she was better than. Even her delusions have stopped. All she has is her memory of her one little moment of glory.
1: What would have happened if she had never lost those jewels? Who knows? Who knows? How strange life is, how fickle, how little is needed to ruin or to save One Sunday, as she had gone for a walk along the Champs-Élysées to freshen herself after the labors of the week, she caught sight suddenly of a woman who was taking a child out for a walk. It was Madame Forcier, still young, still beautiful, still attractive. Madame Loisel was conscious of some emotion. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. And now that she had paid, she would tell her all. Why not? She went up to her. "'Good morning, Jean.' The elder did not recognize her and was surprised at being thus familiarly addressed by a poor woman. "'But, madame,' she stammered, "'I don't know. You must be making a mistake.' "'No, I am Matilda Loisel. Her friend uttered a cry. "'Oh, my poor Matilda, how you have changed!' "'Yes, I've had some hard times since I saw you last, and many sorrows, and all on your account.' "'On my account? How was that?' You remember the diamond necklace you lent me for the ball at the ministry? Yes. Well, well, I lost it. How could you? Why, you brought it back. I brought you another one just like it. And for the last 10 years, we have been paying for it. You realize it wasn't easy for us. We had no money. Well, it's paid for at last. And I'm glad indeed. Madame Forestier had halted. You say you bought a diamond necklace to replace mine? Yes, you hadn't noticed it. They were very much alike. And she smiled in proud and innocent happiness. Madame Faustier deeply moved, took her two hands. Oh, my poor Matilda. But mine was imitation. It was worth, at the very most, 500 francs.
0: Irony. (laughs) Things have come out the opposite of what she thought they would. That's situational irony. The situation is the opposite of what she expected. And, of course... The story ends with an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) What happens next has no consequence to us. The self-delusion, the self-serving nature, the lack of agency, all of it. Was it her destiny? Was it her personality? Was it her low societal upbringing? De Montpoussant ends with an ellipsis, but he has led us to his conclusion, you know, going back to that essay Tolstoy wrote about Guy de this is what he had to say. There has hardly been another such an author who thought so sincerely that all the good, the whole meaning of life was in woman, in love, and who with such force of passion described woman and the love of her from all sides. And there has hardly been another author who with such clearness and precision has pointed out all the terrible sides of the same phenomena, which to him seemed to be the highest and one that gives the greatest good to men. The more he comprehended this phenomena, the more did it become unveiled. The shrouds fell off and all there was left was its terrible consequences, and it's still more terrible reality, says (laughs) Leon Dostoy.
1: Oh, you know, I feel like for me to comment here would be swimming in some dangerous waters.
0: (laughs) Yes, it seems that Guy de Montpoussant loved women passionately in every way until the day he died, but he was a realist. He was a naturalist. Humanity, it is what it is. Both men and women were equally human, and he felt no need to romanticize either the essence of men or the essence of women. In some ways, it's kind of refreshing, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you enjoyed this very famous short story by uh, one of our world's greatest writers of short stories. And thank you for being with us today. And if you enjoy our work, please like us on social media. Give us a review on your podcast app. Share a podcast with a friend. Go to our website, com, and what do we always tell you to get?
0: Merchandise?
1: Yes, (laughs) a t-shirt, a mug. Anyway, that's how we grow. Thanks again.
0: Peace out.